0: I invite you to turn in your Bible this morning with me to Paul's letter to the Romans as we continue this series, Romans chapter 1. Last week we looked at verses 15 and 16, and this week we're looking at verse 17. I don't intend to take the entire book uh, one verse at a time, but uh, we do have in chapter – in verses 17 – uh, really the, the theme of the whole book, and so uh, Paul's going to spend the next eight chapters basically unpacking what he means by verse 17, and so uh, it's good for us to take our time this morning and delight in this wonderful truth about uh, the gospel as uh, the righteousness of God received by faith, and so we're going to begin reading at verse, uh, I'm going to pick it up starting at verse 8 again, and we'll read through verse 17. Let's begin at verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's ask the Lord to bless this word. Father in heaven, it is the message that we find here this morning that has transformed your church throughout the ages. Lord, this this is the gospel. Uh, that you save uh, by faith, that you give, Lord, all that we need in Jesus Christ, and we can receive it freely. And Lord, I pray you give us ears then to hear this morning, and hearts to rejoice in in what you've done for us in Jesus, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Some of you know uh, Rick Anderson. He's an OPC missionary serving in um, New Jersey, Uh, not just because New Jersey is uniquely a needy state when it comes to spiritual things, but uh, because he's ministering to the Jewish population there in, uh, in New Jersey and, and New York. Uh, he's got a unique ministry to, um, to Jews. And he writes in, in a letter of a conversation he had with a man named Ronnie, and uh, the discussion uh, was about how one can find eternal life, and, and Rick writes this, Ronnie told me that he believed, he believed that if a Jew does his best to live a good life, God will accept him. So what happens when you don't do your best, I asked? Have you always done your best? And what hope do you have if you decide not to do your best once in a while? Rick writes, at that moment, I could not for the life of me remember the passage that deals with works righteousness. So the conversation ended and we departed cordially. I left him some literature. As I was walking back towards the boardwalk chapel, I remembered the verse I was looking for. In fact, I had it typed out on a laminated pocket card I had with me. So I returned to the store, met him again, and pulled out the card, pointed to it, saying, here, read this. It's taken right from the Torah. It was Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. It says, for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. At that, Ronnie said nothing for a moment and then said, yes, I know that's true. And I know that because of this, I'm not going to heaven. Listen, I said, what if God has done what no man could do for himself? What if God is able to save sinners freely? Uh, Our world is full of people trying to do their best, hoping, hoping that it will be enough. Uh, to atone for their sin. Unfortunately, the church is also full of people uh, often trying to do their best, uh, hoping that uh, somehow uh, they can gain the favor of God, somehow be have assurance of their faith, and so they do their best and are uh, weary and disheartened because of it. We know that we don't always do our best. In fact, we probably have never ever reached our best, have we, uh, because we are so prone to sin. Uh, that's the beauty of the gospel. You see, Paul was not ashamed for the gospel because the gospel is a message for people who don't do their best, uh, for people who have sinned violently against God and who deserve in truth nothing but the judgment of God. But this is a, this is a good news, a message of, of God's uh, delight in rescuing sinners um, all by grace and all through faith. Uh, Paul. We looked last week at verse 16 where Paul delights in the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. And in verse 17, Paul addresses how does that power work? How is the gospel the power of God unto salvation? And we'll see that it is uh, specifically... the power of God unto salvation, because the gospel is this proclamation of God saving sinners, not by their works, not by their best, but by giving to sinners the gift of righteousness received by faith. So this morning, we're going to just unpack this verse together. We're going to look first at the, the nature of the gospel's power, and then we'll look at the meaning of the, that phrase, the righteousness of God, and then finally, the significance of faith. And, and so let's just step in here, looking first of all at the nature of God's power. As I said, verse 17 explains how does the power of the gospel work? What is the power of the gospel like? Because we have to acknowledge right off the bat that the power of God in the gospel is not like the power of God uh, revealed in creation. That was sheer omnipotence where God looked over this, this uh, vast, empty void and the darkness of it, and God spoke. And galaxies sprang into being. God spoke, and, and everything that we see, everything that we enjoy in creation, uh, came about simply by sheer sovereign power. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. That's the glory of God's power revealed in creation. He just spoke it. A revelation of unmitigated, inestimable, infinite power. But that is not the power of God as it's revealed in the gospel. The power of God in the gospel is of different sort. You see the salvation of sinful man cannot happen by simple fiat. God cannot simply say, "Let them be saved." It could not happen that way. Sometimes people will suggest that it should. I've heard people say, "If God is all powerful, right? If if God can do anything, why doesn't he just forgive everyone? Why doesn't he just use his power to save everyone? Well, that might sound like a reasonable suggestion, but it fails to address certain essential realities. When God created the heavens and the earth, as we said, he just spoke into the empty. He spoke into the void. But when God determines to save sinners, it's not a void. There are are objective irrefutable realities that have to be addressed. There are things that must be faced and dealt with. For instance, the reality of man's sin and the reality of God's own character, His own holiness and His justice. So to suggest that God could just wave His hand and forgive sinners, you see, ignores the moral reality of God and of His universe. It pretends that God is not a holy God. But the reality is, you see, that, that there is a moral reality that must be addressed. It must be answered. We live in a culture that is increasingly infatuated with ignoring reality, and so on all sorts of fronts, you'll have people pretending there's no such thing as biological reality or as fiscal economic reality, as social reality. Let's just pretend there's no such thing and plow forward with our initiatives and and proposals. Well, that's not how the world works. You can pretend that maybe for a while. At some point, you're going to have to deal with reality, and the same when it comes to the gospel. Sin is an actual moral evil. It's not just a mistake. It is a positive, objective violation against God Himself and a desecration of His good creation. That's what it is. It is a real something. If it happened to you, you would want to be acknowledged as a real something, right? There's been a wrong committed here, an injustice committed here, something that needs to be addressed, dealt with, faced. And to suggest that it can just, just be waved away by fiat, by divine power, you see, it ignores the reality of the evil itself and ignores the reality of God Himself. And Paul's going to move in verse 18, you you see, immediately to start dealing with those realities. Verse 18 begins with the word for. For the wrath of God is being revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He's going to deal with the reality of the wickedness of men and the reality of the wrath of God. And he's going to show how the gospel addresses those realities. God's wrath isn't, uh, it, it's a reality that has to be faced, isn't it? Uh, his wrath isn't how He feels about sin. God's wrath isn't His emotional response to people doing wicked things. It is His holy, necessary, judicial response to all that is, all that is wicked and wrong. And all those who are wicked and wrong. So Paul will say in in chapter 2, verse 5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul's just reminding people, this is is an objective reality that every sinner has to come to terms with. We've got to deal with the, with the fact that God in His holiness is actually terrifyingly, gloriously committed to dealing with sin. There's an unswerving pledge on God's part to punish all that is evil. And it's a necessary part of God being who He is. If He's going to be a loving God, who cares for His creation and cares for those made in His image, then He must of necessity be committed to dealing with the things that desecrate His creation and degradate and destroy those made in His image. He has to deal with it, or He's not a loving God. So these are the realities then that the gospel must confront. The reality of objective evil. The reality of God's own gloriously just holy, loving character, which must destroy evil. Well, how does the gospel answer and address those realities? That's what we'll be looking at uh, throughout, uh, well, at least for the first eight chapters. But there's another reality here that uh, that comes into play when when we talk about the gospel, and, and that is the reality of the love of God for sinful man. The love of God for sinful man. You see, you don't need a gospel simply to, to deal with the reality of man's evil and the reality of the holiness of God. You don't need a gospel to deal with either one of those. Judgment Day will do just fine, right, where God, when God actually takes care of the sin problem by destroying it and destroying sinners, and, and, and God's justice then is perfectly maintained and the, and the problem with evil is resolved. Judgment Day would suffice. It is only the love of God for sinners, you see, that necessitates a gospel. You see that love throughout, throughout Scripture where, where God rebukes Israel for their sin, and yet at the same time uh, grieves their sin and, 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 and pleads with Israel to return, pleads with them to wake up, pleads with them to come back. Assures them that he he loves them and and that his desires for their good. You see, that's the beautiful character of our God that necessitates a gospel. And that helps us and helps us understand what this term means, this term, the righteousness of God, means. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God, A, verse 16, and. It is the for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That's a really critical phrase. To get that phrase wrong means you'll get the gospel wrong. So, what is the righteousness of God? A common mistake. If if I were to ask you this morning, what is the righteousness of God? I think most of us would tend to say the righteousness of God is that character of God, it's an attribute of God, that He is holy and he's just, he's he's perfect and pure, he's righteous. Uh, That's the mistake that Martin Luther made, that the Catholic Church made back in the uh, days of the Reformation. It's it's why Luther was initially terrorized by this verse. If if you would ask Luther back in the day, "What's what's your least favorite verse in the Bible? It probably would have been Romans 1 verse 17. Luther says this, I had been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans. But a single word in chapter 1, verse 17 stood in my way. For I hated that word, righteousness of God, which I had been taught to understand is the righteousness with which God punishes the unrighteous sinner. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. So when Luther read righteousness of God, he read the judgment of God. It is exactly the righteousness of God that is, that is opposed to our unrighteousness and must destroy unrighteousness. That's, that's what he read. For the, for the justice of God, the judgment of God is revealed. Well, what do you do with that? As a Catholic monk, Luther just then committed himself to doing the best he could to try to live according to the righteousness of God, but but his conscience continually revealed to him, you're not doing enough. You're not doing enough. He wore out his mentor, the bishop over him, by continually going to him and confessing his sins until his mentor finally said, Martin, wait until you actually confess real sins, because he would be confessing attitudes and, 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 and thoughts, anything that was, that was not in perfect accord with the law of God. Well, Luther was being the honest one because he did fall short. And so he had no hope. He knew his best was never going to be good enough. But you see, the problem was he misunderstood the term. He misunderstood what Paul meant. When when Paul is talking about the righteousness of God, he's not talking about God's character, first of all, but God's saving acts. How do we know that? Well, Paul is an Old Testament scholar par excellence. That was the scripture that Paul knew, that he memorized, that he taught. And so there's no doubt that Paul understood the term the way it was used in the Old Testament. Well, how was it used in the Old Testament? One of the primary ways is it is a reference to God's saving action. For instance, Isaiah 46:13, I am bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away, and my salvation will not be delayed. Isaiah 51.5, my righteousness draws near speedily, my salvation is on the way. God's righteousness, you see, the righteousness of God is God's saving activity, His faithfulness to His covenant promise. Um, so Doug Moose says the righteousness of God is the saving act whereby God brings people into a right relationship with Himself. And so Paul now, uh, an Old Testament scholar who has seen the, the glory of the New Testament gospel, received it from Jesus himself, Paul, you see, understands that the righteousness of God here refers to all that God has done savingly by the power of his hand in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the righteousness of God. And so in the gospel, you see, Paul delights in the gospel because the saving acts of God in Christ are revealed in the gospel. The gospel is the news about what God has done. And, and this word revealed," it, it means to uh, it's a dramatic unveiling of something that had been formerly concealed. Uh, Paul glories in the gospel because it's this, this magnificent revealing of the righteousness of God, the saving acts of God before the eyes of men and angels and the demons of hell. The Bible tells us that people, the prophets of old and even the angels had longed to look into the, the salvation of God. It was, it was revealed in the Old Testament in shadow form, but now it bursts into its full glory as Jesus Christ is revealed, this, the righteousness of God, the salvation of God for sinners. As we move on through Paul's letter, we're going to see how it is the love of God in Jesus Christ that perfectly answers in a gospel way the the realities of our sin and God's holiness. That the gospel is not the power of God by divine fiat, but the power of God by divine love, where God Himself comes to this earth in human flesh, God Himself born of a virgin, God Himself uh, living in perfect obedience to the law on our, in our place, and, and God Himself willingly going to the cross, God Himself willing to bear the wrath of God that we deserve. That's the glory of the gospel. God himself willing to suffer and die, and in that to atone for sin, the sin issue is resolved, and God himself in his death satisfying the demands of divine justice. So God is satisfied. The justice of God is satisfied, and sinners by that love are reconciled to God. That's the gospel. You're reconciled to God in spite of the reality of your sin and in spite of the the holy character of God, God in love has made a way to answer both those realities to bring us into a new reality, the reality of the grace of God poured out upon us, upon all who believe. And that's the significance then of faith as we come to our last point. This saving power of God comes from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. A Faith is one of those words that you grow up with if you're in the church. And yet it, it is, it's is—it's such a critical word and a word that we could just easily take for granted and sort of assume, yes, yes, I believe, right, I, I believe in Jesus. And all we mean by that is that we believe that there was a the historical figure, a man called Jesus. And, and we believe that the things that, that the Bible says about Jesus are true. We, we believe it's true. But see, this faith is a critical issue because, because um, it, it's how you receive salvation. It's how you, the devil believes that Jesus existed. The devil believes everything the Bible says. And yet, obviously, the devil's faith is not a saving faith. And so, what is it that, that Paul wants to pound home? Why does he talk about faith here? Well, I think if of everything that Paul says about the glory of the gospel, this is maybe at the core of his message, that, that the saving power of God comes not to those who work, but to those who believe. It is a gift, a gift received by faith. If you have your Bible, just go to chapter 3, one page over, and notice what he says in verse chapter 3, and we'll start at verse 4. 20. Notice earlier on, no one is righteous, verse 10, not one. No one seeks for God. Everyone's turned away. No one does good, not even one. Uh, Verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. It just slams the door on salvation by doing your best. It's not going to happen. It cannot happen because of the reality of our sin. But, that's the beauty in verse 21. But, but now the righteousness of God has uh, been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe For there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the righteousness and redemption, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. To be received by faith. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, you see, because it doesn't require anything of you. It is a gift God gives to us. The the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation because all the work, the work of redemption was all, all accomplished by Jesus Christ. When he bowed his head on that cross and cried out, Tetelestai, it is finished. What he meant was the work was finished. It was accomplished there, done, sealed by his own blood. All that is left to do for sinners is to receive it, to believe. You see, that's what Paul means by faith to receive it and to keep receiving it so that we live by it. The righteous shall live by faith. That's the critical core of Paul's message. God's salvation is not for those who try hard, who do their best. It's given to people who acknowledge their best will never be good enough and who come then to cast themselves on Jesus Christ in faith, to believe in Him. Paul, of course, had learned that lesson the hard way. Paul was a man who was very good at doing his best, wasn't he? He was the the right uh, ethnic origin. He was a a Hebrew. He He was a Pharisee. He knew the law. He kept the law. He excelled in doing his best. And then he met Jesus, the Holy Son of God. And in a moment, Paul realized his best was a dunghill. It was a delusion as he stood before the righteousness of God. And yet Paul then learned that the righteousness of God, the saving acts of God, comes to those who believe, come to those who reach out and receive it. As Paul says in Philippians 3, 9, his new goal in life was this, quote, to gain Christ. And to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God, from God, that depends on faith. You see, that's what Luther came to realize. He writes this. He says, I beat persistently upon Paul, more, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. You you just imagine this man who is persecuted by these thoughts that he's, he's got to earn it. He's got to do enough and it's never ever enough. And there's no relief. There's no, there's no escape because God is God and the law is the law and Luther continually fails to keep it. And eternity is fast approaching. Hell looms in front of him. What is he going to do? Well, he, he realizes as he pounds on St. Paul, he finally realizes as he pays attention to, to the context and, and notices the words, he through who faith is righteous shall live. Martin Luther finally realizes it's not up to what he does. It's about what Jesus has done and and, and that he can receive what Christ has done freely by faith. Luther says this, Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. I remember I was probably 22 years old, yeah, um, I was home from, uh, d- d- just done with college, I came across a John Bunyan's book, uh, Abounding Grace to the Chief of Sinners, if you never read that, highly recommend it, Abounding Grace to the Chief of Sinners, and it's just Bunyan's own story of of. Of coming to faith and how he's wrestled with the sin of his heart and and his blasphemous thoughts at times, convinced that that he was bound for hell, and 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 yet when the gospel finally broke through, it's the exact same thing he came he came to recognize. That we're we're received and 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 saved by faith by faith in Jesus who did the work. I remember, uh, and I don't remember what portion of the book I was reading. I remember that was the. Maybe the first time the gospel in its clarity had broken into my own into my own mind as as I was battling hard to be a better Christian, battling hard to be a a more faithful and righteous person, and failing and failing and failing. And And I'm reading this little book, it's not very big, and I remember I just rocked back in my chair and laughed out loud. There's a gospel for struggling Christians. There's a salvation for people who blow it over and over and over again. Because the gospel is exactly this good news that God rescues you and redeems you and saves you forever by faith, by faith in Jesus Christ. As you simply open your needy, beggarly hand and you say, God, give me what Jesus did for me. Just give me what Jesus did give me His righteousness, give me His obedience, give me all the success and, and the goodness of Jesus, give that to my account, give me His blood to atone for my sin, give me His resurrection to be the power in my life, give me Jesus. See, that that's where salvation is found. And, and, and that's, that is good news for For anyone, no matter where you are, no matter if if you're not a Christian at all or you've been a Christian for 70 years, it's good news for all of us. You see, if the power of God unto salvation in Jesus is freely available to anyone by faith, we can say to every and any sinner with absolute confidence, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. That's the gospel truth. And we can say to the most mature saint who's weary and heart sick because of remaining sin, we can remind them, since we have been justified, this is uh, chapter um, 5, 1 and 2, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through Him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. The gospel is for all of us. Isn't it good news to know that God never asked you to do your best? The church maybe did. Maybe your parents did. But God has not asked you to do your best. He's asked you to believe. He's asked you to believe in all that Christ has accomplished. Jesus doesn't say, try a little harder. Jesus says, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Friends, let me ask you, what would it look like this week for you to stop trying to gain the favor of your Father in heaven and instead receive His perfect gift to you in Jesus Christ. Just receive by faith all the love and all the grace and all the promises that are yes to you in Jesus Christ and to receive it by believing Him. And to make that the foundation of your life. What would, it, what would it do for your relationships? What would it do to your anxiety? What would it do to your soul weariness if, you just, if we just believed? Let's think about it. Amen. Father in heaven, I thank you for a gospel so glorious and rich and full, a gospel for sinners like us, a gospel that is able to completely remove the the terrifying reality of our guilt through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, and and a gospel that is able to satisfy the terrifying, holy, consuming fire of, of God. And, oh, Father, I thank you that This gospel comes from your heart, your love, for you so loved this world you gave your only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Oh God in heaven, we believe, help our unbelief. And I pray, Lord, that as we go back to first principles in our Christian faith, as we go back to the very foundation of of why we exist, what it means to be a Christian, Lord, I pray that we would come back to this, this most basic principle of faith, that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus, his blood, his righteousness, and that we're convinced that Jesus has washed away our sin. We believe that Jesus has satisfied the justice of God, and we believe that Jesus, as the revelation of the love of God, has brought us into grace in which we stand. And Father, I pray that that truth, that simple gospel truth would transform our life. I pray that it would remove anxiety and worry. I pray that it would remove fear of death. I pray, Lord, that it would make us gracious and kind and gentle and patient as we deal with our own brokenness and the sins of others around us. And oh God, we we pray that you would make us a people who live in this truth. And all the praise goes to Jesus. Amen. Let's respond by singing together in Christ alone. Let's stand. Thank you. blessing that God gives to you in Jesus. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Till Christ come again. Amen.